Hey church and friends, it's an immense privilege to open up God's word to all of you. So why don't we begin with prayer that he might open our hearts and that we might hear what he has to say to us today and that he might also calm my racing heart. <laughs> Let's bow our heads in prayer. Uh, dear Grace Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that in it you reveal yourself to us, the source of our protection and our provision. And to pray that you may focus our minds, rid us of all distractions that may distract us from your word, but also to open our hearts so that we may be ready to receive from you, but also that my heart will be calmed so that I may be able to preach faithfully and clearly through your word and that I may be able to speak powerfully to your people. And so, Father, we pray all this in your son's most precious name. Amen. The world we live in is broken. We have seen the brokenness manifest itself throughout the book of Mark so far through many of the stories. The driving out of the impure spirit, leprosy, paralysis, demon possession, the beheading of John the Baptist, just to mention a few. But now, before we think this is so far removed from our world, this can't happen now, let's just look at the news across the world just this week. Protests in Iran, the ongoing war in Ukraine, instability in the Middle East, North Korea firing off missiles, the multiple hacking scandals, Optus, Medibank, even our sacred woolies. Closer to home, there's flooding, COVID's on the rise again, and there's cost of living increases where even our beloved lick and food, the prices are going up. How sad is that? So what is our natural response to all the brokenness that we see in the world? We want to build our own kingdom, something that we can control, something that we can have a sense of stability, something that we can have for ourselves. And nothing exemplifies this better than the Australian dream. What is that, you ask? Well, as Wikipedia helpfully puts it, the Australian dream is the belief that home ownership can lead to a better life and is an expression of success and security. Let's be honest, all of us here feel that or are beneficiaries of pursuing that dream. Even me, as a first-year full-time worker, can feel the tug of that dream upon me. But is that the greatest thing we are destined for? Let's see what hope is offered to the people in the first century and whether it's still relevant for us today. Throughout the beginning half of the book of Mark, Jesus and his disciples have been telling of the coming of the kingdom, where Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior. And finally, in this chapter, Mark chapter 10, Jesus finally tells us how we can enter this kingdom. And in it, we'll find that though we pursue our own kingdom, God's kingdom is the only one that truly satisfies. We all pursue our own kingdom, but God's kingdom is the only one that truly satisfies. We'll unpack that in three points, which should be in your outlines. The alternatives to the kingdom, the attractiveness of the kingdom, and acceptance of the kingdom. Alternatives, attractiveness, and acceptance of the kingdom. But before we dive right in, it might be helpful to define what the kingdom of God is. Broadly speaking, the kingdom of God is the rule and reign of God over all creation. But more narrowly, and this is a definition I want you to keep in mind, the kingdom of God is the spiritual rule over hearts and lives of those who willingly submit to his authority. The spiritual rule over the hearts and lives of those who willingly submit to his authority. 
So let's begin in point one, alternatives to the kingdom. What are the alternatives to pursuing the kingdom of God? We have two examples in this chapter, actually. So let's go to the first one, the rich young ruler, beginning in verse 17. So we see a young man who we know from the gospel stories is a rich young ruler, comes to Jesus, falls before him and asks, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? A rich young ruler. Let's be honest, this is the kind of person we want to be. He's rich, so has great wealth and property. He has his own little kingdom to control, to, pre- to protect him from poverty and to provide a degree of control in his life. He's young, so has his whole life ahead of him to do great things with the drive, the self-confidence and the energy to do so. And he's a ruler, in this case, most likely a synagogue ruler. So that means he's quite knowledgeable, knows the scriptures, is quite highly regarded amongst the people and even recognizes Jesus as good teacher. Goals, right? But then, how does Jesus reply? We see in verse 18, by asking, Why do you call me good? What a confusing response. Here Jesus begins to unpack the man's worldview and helps us do the same. Jesus isn't denying his own goodness here, but invites the man to reflect upon the deficiencies of building his own kingdom. The focus of the man's question was what he could do. It was about him and his efforts. The kingdom that he has built for himself and wants to continue to build. Eternal life, God's kingdom, was something to be earned and deserved rather than something based on a relationship. God's kingdom was merely a nice add-on, an afterthought to an already good life. He doesn't want Jesus to be his savior. He wants to know how he can be good enough to be his own savior. The man wants to save himself from the brokenness of the world. This is us sometimes, right? We want to build our own little kingdom and to save ourselves from the brokenness of the world. So Jesus continues to point out the deficiencies of trying to build our own kingdom. And in this instance, through wealth. He follows the, man reas- the man's reasoning and asks about the commandments, specifically those regarding how people should relate to one another and whether he has kept them. Now, surely we all agree that we haven't been perfect in our relationships with one another. Some of us might think of ourselves as good people, but we all fall short of our own standards, let alone God's perfect standards. Yet, in verse 20, This man is brazen enough to say, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. Was he a miracle child that didn't have a rebellious teenage face? Not only does he think he's obeying God properly, but he goes so far as to believe that he is good enough to enter the kingdom by his own merits. Look at what his wealth has done to him. Wealth has become a dangerous instrument of reinforcing the man's own self-sufficiency and independence from God. Wealth reinforces self-sufficiency and independence from God. To be clear, being wealthy isn't wrong, but to love wealth, to serve wealth, to trust in wealth is. Why? Because it's so insufficient. 
as an idol. Wealth actually makes us serve it. We need to maintain the status quo. We need to be financially independent, such as this modern concept of FIRE. Financial independence, retire early. We need to do things our own way. We need to keep running this rat race of competing with others to maintain our own kingdom. The love of money, of material possessions, of property, it, it grips our hearts. It preoccupies our thoughts. And worse still, it distracts us from desiring what is better. Our wealth makes us think, oh, things are good enough as it is. And that, oh, if I just get a bit more wealth, it'll be even better. Wealth deceives us. Like idols, like other idols, it seeks to make itself the goal of life and feeds us a false sense of security. It actually distracts us from the reality that there is so much that's actually beyond our control. It's actually so exhausting to chase after wealth. It's disheartening when it fails you and it never truly satisfies. So Jesus sees the corrupting influence that wealth has on the man and offers him a way to be free from the man's dangerous influence, from the wealth's dangerous influence. Yet we see the man's true nature of his heart is revealed. He leaves disappointed. He's unable to let go of his earthly kingdom for a kingdom of surpassing value. Despite his own beliefs of his obedience, of his goodness, his reaction shows his disobedience of the commandments. Having worshipped another god, wealth, above the true and living God. He desired his own kingdom above the kingdom of God, but leaves dissatisfied. But let's see the other alternative that's presented in the chapter, where Jesus' closest friends misunderstand the nature of the kingdom and still pursue power and prominence for their own self-gain. Let's go down to verse 35 with the story of the request of James and John. So we see... James and John, upon hearing about the kingdom of God, asked Jesus, Jesus to give them the glory of sitting by Jesus' side. To, to be clear, to sit or be the, by the side of a figure of authority is actually really significant. It is symbolic of wielding that power, of that authority in the name of that person. Such as the term right-hand man is used to denote someone of significant service to another. Despite hearing about the inversion of God's kingdom compared to our earthly kingdom, which we'll see later, James and John still seek power and prominence in the worldly sense. They know of the greater kingdom that is to come, but are still preoccupied by their worldly desires. Let's try and understand why. They were formerly fishermen, which is hard, arduous work, and was actually a profession that was looked down upon. Fishermen did do honest work, but they weren't the most educated. And they definitely weren't classy because they smelled a bit fishy. But worst of all, actually, some aquatic animals were actually considered religiously unclean. So touching them, which they're required to do in the nature of their work, rendered the fishermen unclean, which further alienated them from their own society. These men were the lowest in society. So of course they wanted to seek power and prominence, to have control, to be well-regarded. The book of Matthew in chapter 20 actually highlights this same story, how much James and John won this power and prominence. He recounts this story with their mother coming to Jesus and making the same request. So who's their mother? Medieval tradition actually ho holds their mother, Salome, 
to be the sister of Mary, who is Jesus' own mother. So that would make Salome Jesus' auntie. Now we know if we want to get something done properly, we don't do it ourselves. We get our aunties on the case, right? Because who can resist Asian aunties? Can you say no to your auntie? James and John were really playing all the cards they had to try to get this power and this prominence. And we know that Jesus is truly God, not only because he can say no to his own auntie, as hard as that might be, but because he manages to correct James and John's misunderstanding of power and show them the true meaning of power and prominence, that to be great is to serve. In the world, those with power exert it for their own gain and make it known to others. I'm sure you can think of personal examples in your own life. But let's think about our own pursuit of power. Just like chasing after wealth, we pursue power to mitigate against the brokenness of the world, to give us control over our circumstances, and to protect ourselves from suffering that is out there. But the pursuit of power is an endless one, and an unsatisfying one. Because there's always someone in a better position than us, and there are always things that our power can just never, ever achieve for us. Try as we might, human power only controls so much and actually leaves so much wanting. What about prominence? We all want to be well-regarded, or at least not looked down upon. We want to have good friends, people that admire, to be there with us. But that too is also a never-ending race. There's always another person to impress, or that one person you really admire, but you just can never get their respect. Or to realize that with community as an idol, that our prominence and our friends will and do fail us. They aren't perfect. Human praise is so fleeting and fickle. One minute, people sing our praises. Next minute, they're ignoring us, or even worse, something that Jesus knows full well himself. Let's have an example of this. What is arguably the greatest role of power and prominence that you can have in Australia? The Prime Minister, right? Yeah? So, tell me, who was our Prime Minister, say, five Prime Ministers ago? Think of it, think of your head, come with an answer. Who was our Prime Minister five Prime Ministers ago? Keep it in mind, keep it in mind, okay? But okay, for those, for those of you that find it a bit too hard, how about this? Who was our Prime Minister three Prime Ministers ago? Come on, just, just three, okay? Okay, keep it in your mind. Okay. See, you guys are doing so well, clearly, okay? Okay, but if you answered Kevin Rudd and Tony Abbott, respectively, well done, you've done really well. Can you go out there and be our next Prime Minister, please? <laughs> this just really goes to show that earthly power and earthly prominence is fleeting. And that though we try to pursue our own kingdom, God's kingdom is the only one that truly lasts and satisfies. So in the previous two stories, we see the fleetingness of building our own kingdom and Jesus offering something far better, the kingdom of God. But why would I actually want to be a part of this? Why would I want to willingly submit to God's authority? To let him rule spiritually over my life and my heart. We've come to the attractiveness of the kingdom. And so we know because God is sovereign, he's present 
everywhere, and his presence can be characterized by two things, God's protection and God's provision. God's presence is characterized by his protection and his provision. Let's see how each of these concepts bring us the satisfaction that we seek and why we'd want to be a part of his kingdom to have his protection and his provision. So God's presence. We all desire to be in the presence of something greater. We all want to spend time with someone who we consider to have qualities that are desirable or even arguably better than our own. Whether it be trying to snag that selfie or that celebrity whether to seek that advice from that financial guru or to fork out, in my opinion, ridiculous amounts of money to be in the front row to see K-pop idols do whatever the heck they do. <laughs> the presence of greatness satisfies us because we, can believe, we believe it can do one of two things. We believe that it can protect or it can provide for us. But human greatness is a fleeting thing. It's a social construct between people that keeps changing. It never truly satisfies because it can never truly protect or provide. Let's be honest, that selfie that you took was generic as any other. That guru's advice can't protect you from financial hardship. The hype and the enjoyment from that concert fades as quickly as it came. But what about God's presence and greatness? We see the rich young ruler and even James and John address Jesus as teacher, even good teacher. But this limits Jesus just to be another slightly more noticeable human being whose presence will ultimately pass away. But later, we'll see Bartimaeus address Jesus by the title, Son of David. This title recognizes a far greater reality. It's a messianic title of the long-awaited deliverer of God, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. This means Jesus isn't just a man, but he is God. God in the likeness of a man, here with us in our presence. God who is truly able to grant the protection and provision we seek. Yet being truly God, this, this Jesus still takes little children into his arm and blesses them still gently assures his disciples that their sacrifices are not in vain and reaches out to restore a blind man's vision. This isn't a presence that's distant from us, unloving, uncaring, but one that seeks to be here with us. From this supernatural presence, God provides us the protection and provision that that will truly satisfy. So God's protection. In verse 32 to 34, When Jesus predicts his death for a third time, he knows full well this is to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies regarding the son of David. The son of David was to be our king, to fulfill that all that God has said that he will do. He will secure our place with him. He'll deliver his people from his enemies. He'll bring salvation to all the earth. He will establish his kingdom that will rule forever and ever. And the way that this would be done is through Jesus' death in order to take up our pain and to bear our suffering. And finally, Jesus will rise three days later to show that he has conquered the final enemy, death itself. Isn't that what we're trying to escape from? Isn't that what we want protection from? Pain, suffering, 
death. The whole reason we want to build our own kingdom is to mitigate against the world's brokenness. And nothing epitomizes brokenness better than pain, suffering, and death. Isn't it good news then that in God's kingdom, we are protected from the ultimate consequences of pain, suffering, and death. These things, as painful as they are, no longer have the final say. Even if persecutions are still something we do have to face in this present age, as Jesus does note in verse 30 and 39. These things aren't earned and aren't possible by human effort. Hence why, with man, this is impossible, but all things are possible with God. We are given protection from the worst forms of brokenness and into a kingdom where God provides for us. And that leads us into God's provision. In verses 29 to 30, Jesus gives his disciples and us a great assurance of his provision. That those who are willing to leave behind their own kingdom, whether that be wealth, possessions, relationships, for his sake, for his kingdom, will be rewarded with God's kingdom in heaven to come. But also in the, his provision now for what is necessary to sustain us to heaven. He provides us with his presence, as we've seen, amongst his people, as it says in the verse, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, in his place, homes and fields, giving us more than we could have ever given up, a hundred times as much. He's, in his provision, he grants us abundantly with his presence, his people and place. He has secured for us our greatest need, protection from the consequences of our sin and entrance into his kingdom. So surely if he has done those things, he'll provide everything that we need to be sustained into the heavenly kingdom, even the persecutions that come with it. God knows what we need before we ask him. So surely he knows what truly satisfies us as well. Church, there are many brothers and sisters among us who here at Grace Point have wrestled with this passage, who have trusted in these promises and can bear bold witness here today that these promises aren't empty but are experientially true. Please reach out if you do want to hear more. So we've seen the fertility of building our own kingdom, but also the attractiveness of God's kingdom. So then how do we accept Jesus' invitation into the kingdom? Let's move to our third point acceptance of the kingdom. Despite our Asian upbringing or the hustle culture around us, this is finally something we don't have to earn, but something we wholeheartedly accept with dependence and humility. That to accept the kingdom is to wholeheartedly and humbly depend on Jesus. This can be seen in the little children and Jesus and with Bartimaeus receiving sight. So let's go to verse 13, the little children and Jesus. Here we begin to see the difference between earthly kingdoms and God's kingdom, with childlike faith being the entrance into the kingdom of God, where the powerless actually become the powerful. At this point in Jesus' ministry, he's already quite well known for his teaching and his miracles. And just like any other celebrity, many wanted to come to him. In light of Jesus' status, we can understand with our worldly logic why disciples were trying to stop the little children from coming to him. 
Children are dependent. They're innocent, they're needy, and as we've been hearing, quite noisy. What could they possibly contribute to? Yet, in verse 14, Jesus invites little kids to come to him. Let the little children come to me. And then he says, The kingdom of God belongs to such as these, and takes the children into his arms. Luckily for most of us, Jesus isn't telling us to be childish, else only John would qualify. <laughs> Jesus tells us <laughs> Jesus tells us to receive the kingdom of God like a little child. So how do children receive things? Firstly, let's emphasize the fact that children receive because they can't earn the things that they get. Children are usually in the place where all they can do is receive. They don't refuse gifts out of self-sufficient pride or try to negotiate or earn it or find a way to pay you back. But when they do receive things, children also receive with such wonderful earnestness, joy and sincerity. And so to receive the kingdom by wholeheartedly accepting it with dependence and humility is like what a little child would do. Because we've seen there is no other way by which we can enter the kingdom. But secondly, like children who humbly trust and depend on their parents, we too should humbly trust and depend on God. Faith is not knowing about everything or doing everything right. It's about having faith that no matter what happens, our God is there for us. That trust in Him, even when life seems difficult, especially when life seems difficult, is what makes a believer a child. Unlike what other religions tell you, or what the secular world tells you, the only way to achieve lasting hope, protection, and provision is to not to work and earn it for ourselves, but to trust in the one who has secured it for us. Let's move on to blind Bartimaeus, and we see that the second example of, it, of accepting the kingdom, in the final story of blind Bartimaeus receiving sight, beginning in verse 46. Here we see someone who's regarded as lowly, arguably even the lowest in society, yet with wholehearted dependence, uh, with wholehearted acceptance, independence and humility, is restored and granted entrance into God's kingdom. Blind people, like in our society, but even more in the past, were social outcasts, uh, cast down and resorting to begging, depending on the generosity of others. They could not afford to be proud people, and they knew they would never amass their own earthly kingdom. They were to ever be on the sidelines, to be ignored, to be neglected. Imagine if you're walking by on a street, and a blind beggar starts shouting at you. How would you react? Let's be honest, probably with like minor annoyance as you try to like walk away as quickly as possible. But let's put ourselves in the person's shoes. Think of the sheer desperation or hope that they would have had to cry out like that. And that's the example we see with Bartimaeus when he hears Jesus coming. He is filled with such faith that he cries out to Jesus continually, despite the rest of society literally telling him to be quiet. Verse 48, many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Here in the final story of the chapter, for the first time, do we see Jesus being recognized as something more than a teacher. By calling Jesus this title, Bartimaeus expresses his sincere faith, understanding Jesus' deity, 
dominion and power. It's so ironic that it was the blind, the lowest man that could truly see the greatness of Jesus and his kingdom that he offers and actually becomes far richer than he could have ever imagined. Jesus responds to this act of faith by giving Bartimaeus the attention he never had and called him to himself. He healed Bartimaeus of his blindness so that his physical sight reflected the spiritual sight that he had. Jesus is undoing the brokenness of the world. He's restoring things to the way they should be, not just mitigating brokenness like we try to. Miracles are not an abnormality. They are a restoration of what should be, and church, what ultimately will be. Notice how Bartimaeus responds when Jesus calls him. He tosses everything aside to come before Jesus. What is a beggar's most precious possession? His cloak, or in our modern day, a sleeping bag. His cloak was his source of wealth, of protection, of provision. It was the entirety of the man's kingdom, and he tosses it all away to come to Jesus. He wholeheartedly accepted Jesus with dependence and humility, forsaking everything else. In verse 52, when Bartimaeus receives the gift of sight, he immediately followed Jesus along the road. Bartimaeus received the kingdom of God like a child, gladly forsaking his own kingdom to pursue the kingdom of God that lasts and truly satisfies. In accepting the kingdom, there is a reversal here, where the many who are first will be last, and the last first. We're in God's kingdom. Those who are highly regarded on earth, such as the rich young ruler, are not necessarily first. And nor are those who are lowly, such as children, or the blind, necessarily last. Jesus tells us not to be caught up in the world's view of rank and power. That building our own kingdom with worldly values will not be reflected in his heavenly kingdom. For what we value, what the world values, is not necessarily what God values. Hopefully we can see that the dependence of the kingdom comes through wholehearted acceptance of Jesus with dependence and humility. Where we no longer pursue our own kingdom, but accept God's kingdom as the one that truly satisfies. And so we've come to our points to ponder, which is also in your bulletins. What are some common ways people build their own kingdom? We all build our own kingdom in one way or another. We pursue career, relationships, property as a means of protecting ourselves and gaining control in our lives. Perhaps the categories of power, prominence and possessions can help you articulate what kingdom you have been building. Power trying to know more, trying to work excessively hard to get that promotion, trying to grind just that extra bit more so you can just get what you want. Prominence, trying to impress others, trying to seek to have more influence in our community. Possessions, that's obvious, but building up that stock portfolio, getting that extra keyboard, you know who you are, and saving up for that investment property. What alternatives to the kingdom are you pursuing? hoping that they give you a sense of satisfaction. But now for the hard-hitting question, the second one. How, in what ways do our kingdoms fail our expectations? Just like the rich young ruler found out, building our own kingdom will disappoint us. For him, the rich young ruler, 
His kingdom was obvious. It was his wealth and his possessions. But once we realize how we build our own kingdoms, it's important for all of us to realize, it's important for me to realize that what we've been chasing after will not satisfy. How has God been showing that to you? In our pursuit of what only God can provide, imitations of God will always fail. It might not have happened yet, but it will. It might be a time to realize that there's nothing worse than pursuing your dreams and realizing they're actually nightmares. Even the Australian dream of home ownership can be the shackles that hold you back from wholeheartedly accepting the kingdom. And finally, our final point to ponder, how can you foster wholehearted dependence and humility on God? This would be a great question for you guys to discuss in your community groups or with your fellow brothers and sisters. Unpack what is holding you back from wholeheartedly accepting the kingdom, but also to see how we can cultivate a looser hold of our own kingdom and a greater dependence on God's kingdom to have a greater assurance of his presence, his protection, his provision. So let's end by way of story. Recently, there have been stories coming out about a particular lady. I'm not going to tell you who just yet. And one of the stories is this. There are two American tourists, of course they're American, in the Scottish countryside, and they knew that there was a castle nearby, and they wanted to find their own way in. While they're trying to find their own way in by hiking off all the main paths, they bumped into a lady and a gentleman on a, on a stroll. The hikers asked the pair about how, a, a way of how to get into the kingdom grounds, and the lady remarked, and sorry, I'm not going to attempt the accent, you need to know the queen in order to get in. Asking how she could possibly know that, she replied, I've been coming up here ever since I was a little girl, so over 80 years. The hikers remarked, you've been coming here for over 80 years, surely you've met the queen. The lady responded, oh, I haven't, but Dickie, which is the name of the gentleman, meets with her regularly. So the tourist, wanting a photo with someone close to royalty, gives a camera to the lady and asks her to take a photo of them with Dickie. If, if you haven't picked up on it already, the lady in the story was the queen herself. The ruler and owner of Balmoral Castle, the very castle they were trying to get into. The tourists never realized that they were in the presence of Her Majesty, who would have had the authority to let them enter the kingdom grounds instead of having to find their own way in. Sometimes, let's be honest, we are like the tourists, trying to find our own way of doing things, not realizing that what we truly want and the way to accept it is right in front of us. Let us not pursue our own kingdom when the kingdom of God, the only one that truly satisfies and truly lasts, is here for us to wholeheartedly accept. Let's close in prayer. Uh, dear Grace Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word to us. That in it, that you have shown us our limitations, the fertility of building our own kingdom, but that you have shown us something that is far, far greater, your own kingdom. In you, there is true satisfaction. And you have secured this for us. This is not something we have to earn, but this is something that we get to wholeheartedly accept. So help us to reflect upon that. Help us to reflect on how we can have a looser hold of the world and a greater hold of you, a greater assurance of your presence, of your provision, and of your protection. And we pray all this in your son's most precious name. Amen.